Today, two prominent Ali voices, a medical doctor and a professor of pharmacology. They share a compelling conversation about everything from cranberry juice to how does an aspirin know where to go? Stay tuned as a scientist and a surgeon train their focus on the most complex mechanism on earth, your body. Welcome to In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Ollie, O-L-L-I, is an acronym for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, located at and networked with the Palm Desert campus of California State, San Bernardino. I wanted to be an athlete. I want to be a pro golfer. That's because I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, Jack Nicholas's home base, and I started playing golf when I was like 11 or 12, and I only quit about three years or four years ago. Well, young Fred Abramson didn't grow up to be a pro golfer, but rather a professor of pharmacology at George Washington University Medical School. Dr. Abramson has now retired to our desert, and in place of golf courses, he enjoys teaching Ollie courses, classes in the sciences. Today, he's chatting with Dr. Kevin Sweeney, a former surgeon in San Francisco who now diagnoses course proposals as the chair of Ollie's curriculum committee. He's also an original member of the Osher program here at Cal State San Bernardino Palm Desert Campus. I kind of grew up wanting to be an architect. Uh, My parents had helped design and built their own house. So when I went off to college, instead of picking a college that was good for architectural studies, uh, I selected the college that I wanted to go to and and, uh, thought I'd enjoy. But once I found out that they didn't have an architectural school and, you know, then it meant I was either going to have to switch, you know, careers or switch schools. And I didn't want to switch schools. So I started taking courses that all of my friends were taking, which ended up being a lot of biology and science courses. So I took the dental exam and the medical school exam, and I would have put all my money in the world that I would do well on the dental exam. And I totally bombed that. And I did well on the uh, medical exam and you know the rest is history and if you'd asked me to list all the possible careers in medicine that I would have gone into I would have put surgery at the very bottom and of course that's what I ended up hey Kevin I gotta gotta share an experience with you I took all these aptitude tests as a freshman in college and architecture was high up there so you know in terms of the things that I like to do or that I don't know how those tests are created but they do kind of show what your inner thoughts are, even if you aren't thinking about them. So it's a weird thing. You know, scientist was number one. I was correctly on path. And that kind of design thing was farther down. So far, I can't design anything still. (laughs) Well, the science part of architecture was definitely not my thing. I did not enjoy physics at all and could not see doing. It was the drawing and the art part that, that I liked. And I think I could have done. Well, with that background, you would have designed really pretty buildings that fell down. (laughs) It's <laughs> probably true. But I did in medical school consider going into uh, medical illustrating. That's a very interesting specialty. Yeah. It really is. I remember the, the what was the movie? Uh, I remember they miniaturized the people and they injected them into the body. And I that just, was Raquel Welch, wasn't it? I think it might have been. I was just fascinated by that movie. I just, I just <laughs> thought that was incredible. Time, Kevin. I want to be something longer lived than a red blood cell. <laughs> Well, that's true, Fred. But maybe when you're a red blood cell, that's a long time. I see the body as a, uh, just an incredible uh, machine, if you will, that uh, 
we know an awful lot about, and yet there's an awful lot that we still can't can't predict. You know, I think it's it's amazing in many ways because, you know, thinking back over the past couple of hundred years when we first were able to look at a cell or look at a bacterium, uh, you know, know know what was causing some disease. In Fred's business, we've been doing things to you know, prolong life. I mean, and probably, you know, one of the greatest things is, is therapeutics, being able to, uh, you know, control infectious diseases to extend our lives. And yet, on the other hand, during that same period of time, and actually much more recently, we've been destroying our bodies by chemicals that we put into it, not to try and treat something, but to try and, you know, improve the size of a chicken breast or to improve the longevity of milk in the refrigerator. And, you know, at, at, on the one end, we're trying to extend life with, you know, chemicals and, and good life choices. And then on the other end, people are smoking and, and people are eating, you know, just horrible foods. And um, it, it, it's still kind of amazing to me, even though the life expectancy in the United States has diminished somewhat, and we're certainly not as high as some other Western developed nations. Um, it's still as high as it is. Um, it's probably a testament to the, you know, incredible uh, pharmacology uh, progress that's been made. I mean, you know, you can strengthen a weakening heart. Uh, you know, you can improve failing lungs. I mean, there's an awful lot that, that we can do. But overall, the, the human body, when you look at it on the outside, it just... You know, you see such such variety uh, in what happens to it and what people do to it. Uh, but it is kind of a miracle. We are very, very, very complex organisms. And, and partly because many of our cells are much smaller than other animals. So, you know, like our brains, we, they may not be the biggest brains, but they are more, there are more neurons there. There's more cells there. As somebody who didn't grow up knowing anything about the body, I learned about it, you know, as I move from doing real chemistry to doing pharmacological things to then being in a medical school for 31 years. It's just everything. There's, there's so much there. And you, you start to read, as, as I do now, particularly to get prepared for my courses or even look up things for them. Uh, I can't pick something, some one thing out. Everything I learn about amazes me. My teaching philosophy is, is not to teach what I want to teach, but teach what I think they want to teach. And that's so different from teaching medical school, which wasn't all that enjoyable because I had to teach what I had to teach. Here, I can just go have fun with facts. Uh, I never said that phrase before, but that's, you know, fun with facts. That's cool. And from what I can tell, my students really like that too. Uh, so I'm, I'm fact-based. My, my favorite course so far, the one I've taught a couple of times, is called Urban Myths in Health and Nutrition. And it starts with things that people are very familiar with, like cranberry juice for urinary tract infections. Uh, and then I go through the literature on how it came to be and on real clinical trials that show that this simply isn't true. There is no benefit to women drinking cranberry juice to stop their urinary tract infections. And uh, there are so many of these things. I've got a six-week, 12-hour course full of them. And I have a backlog of candidates just waiting to get in. One of my favorites relates to probiotics uh, that physicians, I'm sorry, but, but <laughs> Kevin, but, but physicians are always prescribing them for when 
an antibiotic is given and, and some gastrointestinal upset occurs, uh, there are numerous clinical studies that show that doesn't have any benefit. It, you may as well give them a placebo because it always gets, not always, but it usually gets better anyway. But basically, it's a wash. And it's just a battle of numbers. There is something like 10 trillion bacteria in our gut, and a dose of, of probiotics might be 100 million or a billion, which is a big number, but it ain't even close. And they've got to get past the digestive system with all of the acids and enzymes and things that could break, break it down. So uh, that's, that's one of, of many favorites. I, I basically don't lecture on anything that isn't my favorites. <laughs> there, there are too many of them that I, that I, I can only, you know, I can select the ones that really make me happy to try to get out into the world. The conversation turned to the largest organ in the body, which is, can you guess it? Surprisingly, our skin. Yes, the skin is the largest organ of the body, and it's obviously exposed to just about everything that, that you know, is out there, whether it's sunshine, whether it's the air, uh, whether it's chemicals we put in our body, whether it's chemicals we slather onto the skin. Um, and most people don't take care of it. Uh, you know, they put on a little lotion or something for dry skin, and, you know, maybe if they're smart enough, they'll put on a little sunscreen, but um, there's very little that people do to protect, uh, you know, their skin. Very few people, I think, see a dermatologist regularly. It might be a little different here in the desert because it's, you know, people are, I think, far more aware of, of all the possible, uh, you know, damage their skin can suffer here. But yeah, yeah, it's an, it's an incredible, you know, part of the body. Well, I'm going to talk about the skin in the aging lecture next week. And there, I would say the, the evidence is that there's a fairly large amount of inevitability there. It, it's like our bones thinning out. You know, it's not, it doesn't have to be osteoporosis, but as we get older, we are going to lose elasticity in our skin. The relative thickness and, and integrity of the different layers of the skin is going to change. And so we are, to one extent or another, going to get wrinkles. We're going to get dry skin. Uh, depending on exposure, we're going to get you know, basal cell cancers and the like. But it also, skin is also a place where another one of my thousand favorite urban legends is, which has to do with uh, uh, patches of drugs that uh, if you have, if you're concerned about seasickness, you put a scopolamine patch behind your ear because it's inside your ear that the motion is sensed in the, in the cochlea. Um, the trouble is, there's no connection of blood between the skin outside your ear and the ear. Anything put on your skin simply goes into the systemic circulation and goes around and around, and sooner or later it reaches the target level. Similarly, contraceptive or estrogen patches, where they tell you to put them? On your, over, on your abdomen, over your ovaries, like they're going to directly stimulate the ovaries. But all you have to do is look at the, the anatomy of the blood supply of the skin to realize, like essentially every other tissue in the body, except for maybe two, what goes in gets picked up by a vein, which goes back through the whole venous system to the heart, and then gets distributed to the, every other tissue through the arteries. So, you know, things don't get taken up by, by arteries or arterioles in the skin. They get taken up by little veins, venules. 
uh, or by the lymphatics. And none of that goes to the organ that's adjacent to it. So there's, I don't know, I don't know my depths, but you know, there's probably not even a millimeter of penetration of a drug that you put on the skin that gets to the organ that's right next to it. It has to go around the whole merry-go-round and then it can do its work. And these things work very well, but it's a placebo effect more than anything else that you should put uh, a motion sickness patch behind your ear. Well, not, not directly related to a skin patch, Fred, but I've heard many times, and I suspect you have too, people ask me, how does that little pill know <laughs> how to get to that particular part of your body? You know, whether that's, it's for your heart or your lungs that, or That's what? funny. That, yeah. That's funny because when I was just starting to do pharmacology, my father asked me the same question. <laughs> Apparently, it's a good, he said, Fred, how does aspirin know when you swallow it whether it's for arthritis or for a headache? <laughs> and the answer is, of course, it does not know. Right. It goes everywhere. With few exceptions, every drug grows, goes everywhere, which is why, for example, cancer drugs have so many weird toxicities all over the body. You can't, you can't target drugs. There's, there's lots of reasons why you can't, but it still seems like a great idea. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So yes, it, Drugs go and do their thing where there's some abnormal physiological process going on. That's what drugs do. Uh, and that's also why drugs have side effects. Right. And drugs yeah. have side effects yeah. because yeah. they go everywhere and there the yeah. aren't any clean drugs. The clean drug would be one that does only one thing, the thing it's supposed to do, and nothing else. And yeah. that's also totally untrue. There's not a single yeah. drug that's, that's completely clean. Well, see, I, I think you could do another uh, course similar to Urban Legends, and that is medical things that, are, that people believe that aren't true at all or yes. misconceptions. Um, I, I've heard a million people say, you know, they take some drug that's five milligrams. They take another drug that's, you know, 500 milligrams, and it's like there's some sort of way of comparing them, even though they're entirely different drugs, because people have no concept that two milligrams of one drug and 500 milligrams of another drug means nothing, because 500 milligrams of one drug may be a high dose, it may be a low dose. Just ask all of the poor people who were overdosed on fentanyl, which is like yeah. a thousand times more potent than more than potent. morphine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's a microgram versus milligram kind of dosage equivalence, and uh, of course, when you buy drugs on the street, you have no idea, no idea what you're getting. Yeah. Let me ask you, Kevin, how do you approach what I would call unsolicited but well-meaning medical advice? Okay, I, I'm no physician, but I do know a lot of medicine. I mean, I understand a lot of things. I can recognize mm -hmm. a lot of things. People tell me about everything that they're taking and doing. Oh, yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm, I almost never offer anything without being asked. And uh, but that's because I know, I know my limitations as a, as a physician yeah. and uh, with all your experience, how hard is it for you to, to not say something when it's, you know, sort of obvious? You know, I, I will, will rarely offer unsolicited advice. If someone will talk to me, it's usually because they either know me or they're comfortable enough asking me a question. Um, and they almost always preface it by saying, you must hate this. You must you know, hate this when everybody asks you these questions. Uh, I was at to dinner with a friend not too long ago who I've known since college, very, very thin, very petite woman. And I just couldn't stop looking at her neck thinking, 
is her thyroid enlarged? <laughs> and <laughs> there's sort of that quandary because even though it's someone I know well, I also know that she has the greatest fear in the world of doctors. And, you know, to, to even suggest that uh, would, would send her into a panic. Um, you know, I, so I said nothing, hoping that, you know, if there was a problem, it would be, be you know, taken care of. Now, if I saw something outrageously horrible, like, you know, a melanoma or something on someone, I would certainly suggest they have that checked out immediately. But, uh, you know, sometimes you just see something and you, I wonder, you know, what is that? <laughs> What's going on with them? <laughs> Surrounded by issues of disease and death, few medical professionals can help but become hypochondriacs. <laughs> and hey, how about Dr. Sweeney and Abramson? I don't run to the doctor very often. I, I kind of, you know, a renegade in that way. But no, I'm not a hypochondriac. I see things in other people, but I'm not a hypochondriac. <laughs> I'm guessing you've probably been in, in good health all of your life, Fred, and knock yes. on wood, so have I. So I think that plays a part. I mean, if I had had a million things wrong with me, I might be, you know, more hypochondriacal. But I, I know it, it, part of it is, is, you know, since I've been away from medicine, uh, my attitude is different. I mean, when I was working all the time, even though I was well, everybody I saw had some sort of a problem that either was surgical or someone else thought was a surgical problem. So it's kind of my attitude towards everybody is it's not a question of, you know, what, it's a question of when, <laughs> and, you know, and when's it going to happen? And then it's like, well, somebody has to take care of all those other people. So I better stay healthy. Um, and then, you know, since I've been living here and retired, of course, it's been in kind of that nice little, you know, age period where you, you're sort of generally healthy. And it's like, well, if the men survive their 50s without a heart attack, they're probably going to live to be a pretty nice old age. And, you know, that's kind of been true. I mean, our friends and neighbors here in the desert have been pretty, pretty, you know, good health. Uh, you know, some of the older neighbors have died, but they've you know, they've been in their high 80s or early 90s, so it's like not unexpected. Um, so I, you know, I guess it's it's a combination of being overwhelmed by disease and illness. And since I haven't had to experience a lot of it myself, it's easy to 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 sort of stay mentally <laughs> removed. One of the things I learned early on in medical school was a professor saying that the sickest kidney is still smarter than the smartest doctor. <laughs> yes, and I, I laughed at that because I never heard it before, but it's absolutely right. Yeah, those, those things stick with you. <laughs> Dr. Kevin Sweeney and Dr. Fred Abramson, two voices of Ollie. And here are others on the joy of their learning and teaching experience. The instructor core, there's one word, passion. They are all full of passion. Because they're not doing it to make the big bucks. They're doing it because they love it. I've taught 
briefly undergraduates hated it, taught graduate students liked it, taught, taught postgraduate and postdoctoral students liked that better, and this is the best experience I've ever had precisely because of the students. I enjoy more than I ever have learning. I mean, so it certainly does up your game when you know that there are people who are listening very closely to what you say and um, you have a very fixed amount of time to present your ideas and it, it needs to be um, educational but it also needs to have some style and you have to be able to tell your story in an effective way. They are just about making this be a really wonderful experience for each and every student. It's not intimidating, it's exhilarating. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. This has been In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Our thanks to Cal State San Bernardino in Palm Desert, along with communications study professor Lacey Kendall and her media students. This podcast was produced for Ollie by Lou Gorfing. And I am Dr. Arlette Poland. Thank you.